Good morning, Awakening. How you guys doing? You good? Awesome. Everybody's awake. Everybody's good. The church is awakening. Y'all should be awake. I love it. Um, again, like Ryan said, my name's Chris, and uh, my wife Allie is with me here uh, today. Uh, we've been married for uh, a little over seven years, and we live over in Redwood City. Uh, my wife is a resident at Stanford, and we moved to the Bay Area about two years ago. Uh, we're originally from Portland, Oregon. I don't know if I got any Northwest people in the house. Amazing. Awesome. Uh, it, the land of rain and um, better coffee. So, uh, but uh, we're so privileged to be here, privileged to get to know Ryan over these last couple months and um, just love this church and I'm a big fan of this church. And so um, I'm really grateful to be here this morning and we get to talk about God's word, our attention to it, and hopefully it will, you know, I haven't talked to Fox about his message next week, but I really hope this message will really set up next week for when you talk about the power of of our words. And so, um, hey, why don't I pray for us uh, in our time together, and then uh, we will uh, jump in. Father God, we are looking to you uh, for your word, for your eternal word to be communicated to us. And uh, we don't want more opinions. We have plenty of opinions. We don't want more information. We got plenty of information. We, we want a transformational word into our lives. And so we need your help with that. And I'm counting on you, Lord, to soften our hearts, to wake up our minds, and to keep our ears attentive to what we might hear from you. And so help me be a good steward today. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. January 15th, 2009, transport yourself almost 10 years ago, January of 2009, the 15th, 100 plus passengers boarded a pretty typical flight in LaGuardia's airport, and a pretty typical flight in every way. You were boarding, struggling to get your carry-on baggage above in the overhead compartment, uh, sitting sitting down, putting that weird seatbelt on that you never see anywhere else except for an airline. And these passengers boarded this flight, but three minutes into their flight, they were on a very different flight because this flight ran into a gaggle of Canadian geese about three minutes into its ascent. You maybe heard this story because the story is often called the miracle on the Hudson. Because they hit this gaggle of geese, and while it starts very traumatic, they lost both thrusts to their engines, and they could not make an emergency landing, that this captain, Captain Sully, who was played by Tom Hanks with a fantastic mustache a couple of years ago, (laughs) actually glided this plane into the Hudson River and made what is called a water landing, or a technical term for um, pilots is called ditching the plane. Does that comfort you? When I ditch something, it's to leave it behind and throw it in the trash or something like that. So this pilot, Captain Sully, glided this plane into the Hudson River. Every passenger walked away with very minimal, maybe zero injuries. Nobody died. Remarkable. It's called the miracle on the Hudson, this crazy, crazy story. What was so interesting, though, was after this happened... Captain Sully was interviewed on literally every channel. I remember this. I remember seeing his face and his mustache everywhere. And he would say the same thing over and over again. He would say, I was just doing my job. I was just doing my job. He had this remarkable confidence that came at the moment of complete panic. He was just doing his job. And to all of us, we were calling him a miracle worker for gliding a plane into the Hudson River. A couple of things about Sully that are interesting, though. 
Number one is that he actually instructed gliding pilots. So he was an instructor, an experienced instructor in have, uh, flying a plane without any engines, right? Just using the, the weather and the wind patterns in order to glide. I know nothing about planes. I just know he knows a lot more. He was also uh, in the Air Force before he flew planes, and so he had tremendous experience with emergency uh, uh, protocol and how, how to ditch a plane. And so what was so interesting about our perception of it was we saw it as a miracle, that he reacted in a miraculous way. What he saw was just a lot of discipline that accumulated to a moment he had to use all the discipline he had. Okay, 17 years before that, in 1992... There was, a, uh, there was an amazing miracle that happened on, uh, in the college basketball world. Uh, if you're familiar with Duke basketball and with the Kentucky Wildcats, you'll know they don't get along very well. And one of the ways we know that is because in 1992 in the East Regional Finals, uh, the uh, Kentucky Wildcats were leading 103 to 102, and Duke was down by one point. And another miracle happened that day when Duke threw a cross-court pass to Christian Leitner. He fakes right, turns left, fade away, perfect swish, perfect swish. I'm a college basketball fan. I'm already getting excited for March, so I have to talk about this now. Okay, just deal with me. <laughs> he makes this miraculous shot, and it's called this miraculous Duke basketball shot. It was this cross-court pass. But what a lot of people don't know is that that cross-court pass that seemed miraculous was actually a play that Coach Mike Krzyzewski drew up. And before they went out on the court, he, all he had to say to his, his team was, we're going to do home run. The play was called home run. It's a cross-court pass. It's to Christian Leitner. And he said, we're going to do home run. We're going to win the game. Break. And they go out, they execute home run, and they win the game. From our eyes, it was miraculous. But it was interesting when you talked to the, when the Duke basketball players were interviewed, Christian Leitner, who made the shot, they said, what was going through your mind? I hate that question, by the way. It's always like everybody asks that to the person who like makes this crazy. What was going through your mind when you made that shot? I was like, probably nothing. <laughs> probably nothing. Christian Leitner said this, catch the ball. You see, it's interesting. He wasn't thinking about shooting the ball. He was thinking about catching it. Because he knew he could shoot it. Because the thing that you may not know about Christian Leitner is at the time, he was the leading college basketball scorer. He was the leader three-point shooter. And he was the leading free-throw shooter. He was, by all accounts, the greatest shooter at the collegiate level. And he knew, all i got to do is catch it. I will make it. You see, in both of these miracle stories, when pulled behind the curtain, you actually see that the way both of these people reacted was not out of luck. It was not out of a miracle. It was out of a disciplined past. They knew exactly what they were doing. You see, and we know this is how life works. We know that you can't hit a game-winning shot unless you learn how to shoot first. L- listen to this quote from Captain Sully. Here's a, here's a quote from Sully. He says this, One way of looking at this might be that for 42 years I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the day of the miracle on the Hudson, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. Pretty interesting. You see, we know this to be true. You can't make a miracle landing unless you're first a pilot. You can't hit a game-winning shot unless you're first a collegiate basketball player. You can't do certain things unless you're a certain type of person. But here's the funny thing. When it comes to life, just living a good life, we often think we will just make the right decisions when the clock's down. 
When we're pushed up against the wall and our life metaphorically hits a gaggle of Canadian geese, we will just say the right thing. You see, we think we'll just be the right kind of person when the pressure happens, but the problem is we often aren't. The problem is when someone says something hurtful to us, we normally say something hurtful back. When our spouse presses us, we normally push them back. When someone betrays us, we write them off. We don't forgive them naturally. But could it be that living a great life is often like these other disciplines, that actually creating a good life, one where we react not poorly but in a godly manner, could not come just out of nowhere but from somewhere? That's what I think the Bible teaches us. If you got a a Bible with you, James chapter 4 is where we will be for a good little bit. James is towards the end of your Bible, and James has has a really interesting uh, idea about reaction and why we do the things that we do. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, James is past Hebrews in your New Testament. If you're in the Peters or the Johns, you've gone too far. James chapter 4, verse 1. James says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Okay, why do you react poorly? Why do you say things you shouldn't say? Why do you you have the posture of selfishness first as opposed to the posture of selflessness? It says this, is it not this, that your passions, or maybe your translation says your desires, are at war within you? You see, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, he really takes the gloves off here, okay? Do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Now here, pay attention. Verse 6, this is what it says. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace or unmerited blessing and favor to those that are humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God... Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I want to look at the first verse and the last verse of this section. If you got your Bible open, verses 1 and the beginning of 8 have an interesting relationship. That our passions are at war within us, verse 1. But also if 7 and 8, we submit ourselves to God and draw near to him, we will have his presence and a type of posture to where we will react in surprising godly ways. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's the bottom line of the sermon today. If we want to react like Jesus, we must interact regularly with Jesus. Okay, if we want to react the way that Jesus reacted by forgiving his enemies and providing healing and comfort to those who are in affliction, if we want to be that kind of person and react to our world with such grace, we are going to have to interact with him daily in a devotional life. Did anybody, when they were growing up, have the WWJD bracelet? Anybody? Just want to confess here? Okay, I had a forest green one. It was dope. It was so sweet. And when I was given the forest green WWJD bracelet, maybe you were given it in the same way, which is that it was the secret power 
that you had that when you were put on the spot, you could look at the bracelet. <laughs> so it'd be like, yo, Chris, this is a sweet party. You want to go to a sweet party? There's going to be a ton of girls. There's going to be a lot of drinking. There's going to be some sweet substances we could play around with. You want to go to this thing? And then I would look at the bracelet. <laughs> and the bracelet would summon me to go, oh, what would he do? He would probably say no. See, Dallas Willard says this doesn't work. That Jesus didn't live a life when he was put on the spot. Jesus actually lived a kind of life that was beyond just making good decisions when he was on the spot, when, the, when there's 2.1 seconds on the clock or when you metaphorically hit a gaggle of geese above the Hudson River. Jesus didn't just make these decisions out of nowhere. No, he actually made them out of a kind of life. So what would Jesus do is a great bracelet, but it shouldn't be a question we only ask when put on the spot. It should be a question we ask when we wake up in the morning. What would Jesus do when his alarm goes off? What would Jesus do when he is in his car and everything's fine? Instead, we ask the question, what would Jesus do when difficult things happen? But we forget that Jesus was living out of a kind of life. All the gospel writers understood this. All the gospel writers, there were four of them, and they, were counted, they accounted for Jesus' life in four different perspectives, but all of them made sure they mentioned that he was living a kind of daily, devoted life, that he wasn't just reacting to things, but he was interacting with his heavenly father, that he had a relationship with God out of which the rest of his life was based. And so it's interesting that we forget this, but let me just rattle off some scripture. Be patient with me. Do not follow along. You type A people, you're like... Let's go. You're like ready. You want to write down every verse? Just chill, okay? I'm going to rattle off some gospel, uh, some, some of the gospels and these verses. Just listen to the kind of life that they were painting Jesus to have. Here's Matthew chapter 4. It says that Jesus was praying and fasting when he was entering temptation in the desert. Matthew 19, 13. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. Mark 1.35, it was very early in the morning, and while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. Luke 5.15, yet the news was about him was spreading all the more, and crowds were gathering around him, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, this is just one chapter after that verse I just read you. Luke 6, 12, in those days he went to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke twenty two thirty one. 31, uh, caring for Peter, he says, Simon Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have been praying for you that your faith might not fail. Just 10 verses after that verse, Luke twenty two forty four, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly as sweat became like great drops of blood to the ground. And he said, my father in heaven, that's Luke 22 in the gospel of John, John 17, it says, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to his, to heaven and said, that's John 17, one. And for the next 26 verses, Jesus is praying. Let me ask you this question. I just read you eight verses about, okay? Do you think that any of those descriptions of Jesus, do you think that any of what I just read you had anything to do with the kind of person he was? Do you think that Jesus, the way he lived his life, where he became the most admirable, forgiving, caring, kind person the world has ever seen, do you think that any of that 
had to do with any of this. Man, Jesus didn't just react and get lucky. Jesus was living out of a kind of life. All the Gospels agree. Look at this quote from Robert E. Coleman. He wrote this great little book, The Mind of the Master. I think it's actually out of print, but check Amazon. It's a good book. The disciples knew Christ was praying. They, they knew he was praying. They could see the priority of prayer, a life of devotion, of interacting with God. They saw it in his life. And they knew if they were to follow him, they'd have to live by the same rule. They would have to live by the same rule. What I mean is this. When Captain Sully hit a gaggle of geese above the Hudson, he didn't say, what would a pilot do? No, he was a pilot. Likewise, when Christian Leitner caught the ball with 2.1 seconds left and they're down one in the East Regional Finals, he didn't go, what would a Division I college basketball player do right now? He was a Division I college basketball player. You see, we should not ask, what would a Christian do right now? We are Christians. And we live out of a kind of life. And the kind of life we live out of is one connected to Jesus, one connected to his Holy Spirit, one connected to God the Father, one connected to the triune God that interacts with him daily so that when we react, we don't go, hmm, what should Jesus do? Hmm, what would a Christian do right now? No, we just are one. And that when our spouse does something to hurt us, we forgive them. When the person betrays us, we pursue them. When someone needs truth spoken into their life, we're not sheepish. We speak truth into their life because we're Christians. And if you are not a Christian, this is the kind of life Jesus is inviting you into. You see, some people think that Christianity is about an invitation into moralism, an invitation into the right rules. But Christianity is an invitation into a relationship with the Creator, one that will transform the inner workings of your heart so that you live out of a kind of life as opposed to reacting and guessing how a Christian might live. You will never react like Jesus unless you are interacting with him daily. And so what I want to give you this morning quickly is just five essentials for a daily devotion to God. It's in your notes. These will go really quickly, very simple to be helpful to us, how can we interact with Jesus daily? Because if we want to be a kind of church, if we want to be a kind of community, if we want to be a kind of people that react the way Jesus reacted, how could we interact with him? Well, five essentials. Number one, reclaim the morning. Reclaim the morning. I love this because scripture talks so much about meeting God in the morning. If you listened carefully to some of what Jesus was, um, his life was about, there were many mentions of Jesus going in the morning or at early hours or late hours where Jesus would be alone to pray. Psalm 5.3 says, Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Psalm 63.1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. That's a famous line. Psalm 63.1, Earnestly I seek you. The Hebrew word for earnestly is also translated early. Because in Jewish thinking, if you were earnest about something, you'd wake up early for it. If you were passionate about something, if you were earnest about your farm doing well, you'd wake up early to make the farm grow. If you were passionate about your family, you'd wake up early to make your family 
connect with God. And so likewise, God, when we seek God, it's early in the morning. And I would say for some of you, a reclaiming of the morning should be in the cards to be thinking about. I was told once when I was a young man, and this helped me so much, someone told me, Chris, before you, um, they put it this way, seek the face of God before you see the face of man. Seek the face of God before you see the face of man because you'll be surprised how differently you will react to the face of man after you've been before the face of God in prayer, scripture reading, and devotion. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certain seasons of our life where this is incredibly difficult, where this is just not in the cards, right? Some of you wake up because a two-year-old punches you in the throat every morning. You're like, good morning. God, I greet you. Some of you, you know, my wife wakes up at like 4.30 in the morning to go to work. Man, you get up, it's really, really early. Man, you, you have, you, but here's, here's all I'm saying. A lot of us don't. A lot of us have the time. A lot of us have a section of time where all we have to do is just wake up earlier. You see, when you wake up, does the day own you or do you own the day? You see, scriptures seem to have this ownership over the day because every month, most of the time, we wake up and a day just hits us in the face. But man, if we wake up early, we end up owning the day. And so reclaim the morning. But I know for some of you, it may not be. Just reclaim some time. It might be your lunch break. It might be late at night. The kids are in bed. It's time to just claim that time for God, reflecting on the day, seeking him, interacting with him, so that you're making those little deposits of discipline so that whenever you need to withdraw it, you can withdraw it. Number two, interact with scripture. Now, you'll notice I didn't say read scripture. I said interact with scripture. Because reading is certainly part of it, but reading is not enough because this book is not just like any other book. You don't read your Bible the way that you read Harry Potter. You don't read this book the way that you read your phone. This book is living and active, and it requires attention of reading, meditating, praying, considering, sitting with it. I think we should read the Bible slow and fast. I think we should read the Bible at various paces so that we can understand what's in this book. And for so many of us, we think that reading the Bible is just like reading anything else. But do you know when you open this book, there's a defense? What I mean by that is there's an enemy that doesn't want you to read this book. It's unlike your phone. It's unlike a novel. It's unlike the New York Times. It is different, and it requires a different level of attention. Man, I think for some of us, it's really good to just um, simply open and read small sections of your Bible. Psalm 119.33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. In Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like, let the Bible, you know, we're so worried about getting into the Bible instead of, we should be worried about the Bible getting into us, right? Like, the Bible should be transmitting into our hearts, and we have to read it in a different way. I'll just give you this spoiler alert too. There's never been an easier time in the history of the world to to read the Bible than in the Silicon Valley in the 21st century. All of us, we've never had it easier. Do you know actually you could 
have the Bible read to you? <laughs> I don't know much about my phone, but I'm pretty sure if I was like, read me the Bible, it would just start. <laughs> I could be totally wrong, but I'm just saying we have the technology. We have multiple translations. We have many websites, many, many things to get us into the Bible. Uh, the problem is, is our heart, but it's never been easier to read the Bible. Number three, very simply, is to pray. From God's word, we're, when we read it, we're led to pray, mostly because we're like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> it's like a little confusing. So we're led to just be like, help, you know? And I think that's good. I think that's a gift from God. To give us a word that is not simplistic is beautiful. Man, I've spent my life studying this book. Man, I've gone to seminary studying this book. It is complex, and the more that I study it, the more beautiful it is, but we need God's help with it. Again, it's, it's not like your phone. You can't just read it and then be like, I get it. It's like a lot of people tell me, they're like, Chris, I've read the Bible cover to cover, and I'm like, not impressed. You know, I don't know. Like, I, am I supposed to be impressed by that? Reading the Bible cover to cover can be difficult and dangerous. We need God's help. We need the Spirit of God to help us understand what is written in this book. And it also should play with our prayer life, though, because it should inform us how to pray. You see, this is giving you God's language. It's giving you God's heart. It's giving you the way that he speaks so that when you pray, you know who you're praying to. It's pretty often that I counsel with Christians. I've been a pastor for 10 years, and I often will counsel Christians, and they'll say, man, Chris, I've just, I'm struggling with this or that, and I'm, I'm, I'm praying about this right now. And it, sometimes I'll just say, and they're like, it's just not working. You know, they're frustrated. And what I'll say to them, I'll ask them, can you tell me a little bit about the God you're praying to? Because I have found that a lot of people assume they're praying to the God of this book, but when their prayer life is not involved with this book, They're praying to a God who's not described the way that this book describes God. Very, very interesting. When Jesus was asked, uh, his disciples came to him, they said, teach us to pray. It was actually the only time they ever asked Jesus to teach them anything. Isn't that interesting? Luke 11, verse 1, it says, teach us to pray. And Jesus didn't say, I'll just say whatever you want. He didn't say, just say what's on your heart, sweetie. That's what we say. We tell people to do that. You know what Jesus said? He said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For all yours is kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. That's the Lord's prayer. Jesus gave you a script in scripture to pray. I love that because most days I wake up, I don't know what to pray. Man, this week with Florida, what do you pray? You, think, you see, so many of us pray out of the cavity of our heart as opposed to the abundance of God's word. Jesus did not say, pray however you want. He said, pray like this. And he gave us a prayer to pray. Now, that doesn't mean you... Obviously, pray out of your heart. Pray what's on your heart. Say what you want to say to God. The Psalms are filled with people frustratingly exposing their heart to God. I love it. I'm just saying, if you're like me, and many days you don't know what to pray, there's words here for you. 
There's words here for you, that your prayer life does not have to be this life that's like inventive and creative and you hear pastors pray and you're like, wow, that's so cool, I don't know how to do that. Jesus says, I'll give you a guide. You know, you can use, uh, Tim Keller calls it like spiritual riffing. He's like, use the Lord's Prayer or use the Psalms. The Psalms are all prayers. There's 150 of them. Use all the Psalms, use the Lord's Prayer, use prayers in the Bible and just riff off of them. Use it as the baseline, the rhythm section, and improvise over at the top of it, right? Just, just be creative with it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that make you think of? Where does that make you go? My fourth point is incredibly profound. Are you ready? Pray more. <laughs> I, just, I just had to underscore the importance of this. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not pray. Christians pray. If we want to react the way that Jesus would have reacted, we must be praying. Finally, number five, just pace yourself. Pace yourself. I think when we're getting into this territory of devoting our lives to God and having this daily devotional time with the Lord, we want to be the kind of person who just tries it out. Just tries it out. And I think there's some, some wisdom there, but could I help you, give you some language here? Don't try a devotional life. Start training for a devotional life. There's a big difference. Training and trying. You may have heard this before. I didn't make it up. Somebody smarter than me did. Training and trying. There's a difference. You see, right now, if I went to go try to run a marathon, I know I look very frail and like I could maybe complete one, but I'm very weak. You're like, he's so small. Um, someone feed him. Um, but... If I were to try to run a marathon, I could probably make it like seven or eight miles. Like I run, but I don't run far, okay? I like workout, but I don't work out much, okay? I could maybe make it like seven or eight miles if I went to try to run a marathon. But if I trained to run a marathon, like if I started tomorrow to train to run a marathon, I think I could actually get there. I'm just not going to, but I think I could. <laughs> I, I think I could. Likewise, in Scripture, uh, Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, train yourself in godliness. We want to try to be godly, and so every day we wake up and just try to be godly. Man, we got to wake up and just train in godliness. You maybe can't make it 26 miles. Make it one. Just walk a half a mile with the Lord. Just wake up and train. Just, just take that next step. That's my joy as a pastor. I love just helping people take that next step. The pressure's off. It's not about what you will do for God. God has done everything in Christ. We just get to train ourselves in it. And, and, and so some of you, man, when I, was, when I was a young man, somebody just told me, Chris, I, I was like, what do I do for my, my devotional life? How do I like devote, daily interact with God? And I wanted like a plan. And my pastor just said, hey, Chris, at this point where you're at, just open the book. And I was like, I can do that, you know? <laughs> just open the book. Some of you, that man, that's where you're at. Just open the book every day. Just open the book and see what happens. Here's a quote from Dallas Willard. He says this, who are the great ones in the Christian life? Who are the great Christians? The disciples, he says, who are these people? Who, uh, what are the significant movements in the history of the church that do not bear the deep and pervasive imprint of the disciplines of spiritual life? If there are none, what leads us to believe that we might be the exception to the rule? 
Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus Christ himself, the apostles, the reformers in church history, the church fathers. Every great Christian who has walked with God has had the mark of discipline in their life. What makes us think we'd be any different? This is the way that Jesus has given us. And what you do after your alarm goes off is a crucial decision. Just as much as a crucial decision, I would argue, as when someone betrays you and you have the decision whether to pursue the friendship or write them off. When you have that moment in your life where there's 2.1 seconds on the clock or you hit that gaggle of Canadian geese, metaphorically, what are you going to do? Those decisions are equally important as what you do every day. You see, are your life and my life, it's just an accumulation of days. If you want to put Jesus first in your life, you've got to put him first in your days because your days will just accumulate to make up this kind of life. And the kind of life you're going to live will become that way. And let me just, could we just dream for a little bit here? What if Christians did this and committed themselves to interacting with God every day. Think about now in our community how that would change the Silicon Valley. Think about how that would change Google, Apple, Facebook, and then all the way down to any position that you are holding. How would it change our hospitals? How would it change our schools? How would it change our places of work if Christians began to interact with God on a daily, regular basis? Do you think we would start to make different decisions? Could this be a vision for us that we could live a different kind of life reacting in a different way? It has to begin with us, friends. It has to begin with us. Man, and I I can't help but just close on this kind of personal note, which is the context, actually, when you study James 4, it says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And it says, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the desires at war within you, that passage we read? The context for that, often scholars trace it back to chapter 3, verse 1, which talks of directing towards teachers and pastors. So one could actually read James 4 as the primary audience being me, a pastor and a teacher. Meaning, what's causing fights and quarrels amongst spiritual leaders? It's often they're not humbling and submitting themselves before God. You see, this is a deeply personal thing for me because many of you have had experiences like me with pastors who have failed publicly secret is they actually fail privately first. And man, I think for all of us, we're all addressed in this though, in some way. If we're going to succeed publicly, if we're going to be put on the spot, if we're going to have that moment of crisis like Captain Sully or Christian Lee, how we react publicly will come from what we have done privately. And so I wonder... What, what are, where are you with this private life? Because many of us lead public Christian lives. You're here today at church. Man, this is a public Christian life. But what do you do with your time alone? Let me end this with the place that Scripture ends this, which is with a promise. You see, some of you, this creates a kind of anxiety. Some of you type A people, you're like, let's do this. You know, you're ready to go on the devotional life journey. But man, for some of us, you're like, man, this, this is going to be hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard, but it's also going to be worth it. 
it's also going to be maybe the most important thing you have ever done is just daily devoting your life to Jesus. Because the scripture says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a promise. You see, every command in scripture is rooted in a promise. Isn't that beautiful? Every time scripture commands us to do something, it's rooted in something God has already done on our behalf. You see, it says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He doesn't say ask and you might be given this. He doesn't say seek and you'll get lucky if you find me. He doesn't say knock and then you'll have to like maybe knock again and then maybe you'll wait your whole life and God won't show up. No, seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be open. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Some of you are in a deep, dark, kind of depressive state with Christianity and I wanna tell you, he's on his way. He's coming. That as we draw near to God, you may not feel him today, you may not know him right now, you may not have an exact understanding of who he is or anything like that, but I'm telling you, if you're on his way to him, he's on his way to you. It's a promise from scripture. And we know this because Jesus, while he was on the cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in the absence of God on the cross, we realize the story didn't end there. That Jesus was sitting on a godless instrument that was crucifying him, publicly displaying him as a criminal, and the story didn't end there. That the story didn't end with a man hanging on a cross. It ends with a man getting up from the grave. That actually when God experienced, when Jesus experienced the absence of his father on the cross, it was so that we could experience the presence of God every day, that we can actually live a life of victory and resurrection because the story doesn't end in absence. The story doesn't end in seeking. There will be a day where all of our seeking will be worth it, where we will stand with God before him and know him as he is, and we will be his people in his presence, in his place. That's the hope we're all working for one day, all getting towards one day, and it's already done in the work he has accomplished. And so no matter what we do or who we are or what kind of religious activities we have, we're all heading for one place because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. We're heading towards a place where God will be. And you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Seek, Christian, you will find. Let me pray for you. God, we are grateful that all of our seeking, Lord, that all of our devotion to you comes out of your great devotion to us. You have devoted your life to us. You gave your life to us. And now, Lord, we get to devote our lives to you. So my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would empower us supernaturally as your people, as your church, and that you would grant to us everything that we need for the days to come. Lord, I pray, particularly for awakening, Lord, that you would craft discipline and devotion in every person's way of life, God, that you would inspire this church, that you would use your Holy Spirit to lead the individuals and the families in this life of devotion. God, we trust you, and we need you for this. We cannot do a life of devotion without you. We need to be interacting with you at every step of the way. And so, Father, I pray even right now in worship that you would, God, speak to us and empower us. In your name we pray, amen.